A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hundreds of cyclists took to the streets and parks in Toronto over the last week, protesting the issuance of speeding tickets to cyclists in High Park. The injustice, at least as they see it, is that cyclists are being issued tickets by authorities while drivers aren't being subjected to the same level of scrutiny. But this isn't an issue that started in High Park or even Toronto. The preferred treatment of cars and drivers in Canadian cities is baked into the very culture of this country. And that's not just a matter of law enforcement, but a matter of how we design the places we live and how we think about how neighborhoods, communities, and cities should work. This preference for the car then seeps into all aspects of our lives, from how Canadians can address the climate crisis, to our health, and even to how our world sounds. Our audio editor and technical producer, Tristan Capicione, brings us this story. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Rafiq Rahim Tula, Jennifer Seelan, Matt Toby, Laura Taman, Brian Rosberg, Christian Nielsen, Darren Airy, and Caitlin. I'm Caitlin, a former journalist and current marketer based in Toronto. Having come from the world of media and news, I support Canada Land because I know how important media criticism is to holding journalists and publishers accountable. I especially enjoy when Jesse or another Canada Land host discuss with a guest the behind the scenes of a news story. I love knowing how the media sausage gets made.
I live in Montreal, on a major street. It's loud, like really loud, for almost 18 hours a day. As someone who works in audio for a living, undesirable sound is kind of like my arch enemy. If I take a trip in the city, I'm surrounded by loud sounds, making it hard to, you know, among other things, listen to podcasts. But then, in the spring of 2020, silence. People weren't driving to work or to do errands, and those first few weeks of the pandemic were magical. But, of course, the traffic came back, and with it, the noise. This might not come as much of a surprise. After all, cities are just loud places to be, right? So the idea is not to think that the city is just full of noises that need to be quieted. Then I met Edda. So uh, my name is Edda Bild. I am a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University. My most prominent position is a lead soundscape researcher in Sounds in the City, or Ville Sonore, which is a cross-sector partnership that has been created a few years ago with McGill and some other partners around the world, which we're trying to just effectively make cities sound better. Edda convinced me that sound we must live with. But noise, noise is more of a design flaw in our cities. To be able to live in a city, you also need to acknowledge the coexistence of multiple sounds. So then how can we actually build a city that takes into consideration the fact that there will always be sounds, but not allow this to be an issue and to expose people to problematic sound environments all the time? Etta and I went for a walk around Montreal's Plateau District, talking about her research and how cities around the world are starting to think more carefully about sound. We're arguing that sound is underconsidered in urban design and urban planning, and that there's a lot of work that's being done afterwards to fix problems, when a lot of it could be addressed if you integrate sound consideration earlier on. We stopped for a moment in a new small park on Mount Royal Avenue, the Place des Fleurs de Macadam, located on the site of a former gas station. There are a few trees and plants, a concrete path in the middle with water misters occasionally spritzing passers-by, and some benches and tables for people to relax and eat lunch at. We got to talking about some of the work she and her team are doing, including with that park in particular. As someone who thinks about sound a lot, when I consider sound in urban design, my mind jumps to things that might seem obvious, you know, like loud sounds, like cars and trucks are bad and quiet ones are good. But Etta says it's a little more complex than that. So we're trying to avoid going on this balance-based approach of negative and positive, because that's anyway going to be something that's very much person-dependent, very much policy-dependent, and you name it. So then, okay, what do we want the square to do? What do we want the space to do? In reframing this idea of focusing on activity rather than on good and bad, we can ask people in an environment, what does an environment do for you for what you want to do? What would you like to hear less of? What would you like to hear more of? And what could this environment do for you for you to be able to do your activity better? We continued walking through the neighborhood, and I asked Etta how she and her team account for car traffic in their research. Yeah, so traffic is definitely, um, for some, the bane of our existence, but without being dramatic about it. It's just that traffic really is one of the largest source of pollution in the city, and not just noise pollution, but of course, everything else that we know. And what we know is that noise pollution is also not as harmless as it sounds. In addition to generally just being unpleasant, it can actually be deadly. 
Research in Europe has shown that noise pollution can have a wide range of health effects from sleep disturbance to negative impacts on cardiovascular and metabolic systems. It's estimated that 12,000 people die prematurely on that continent every year just because our cities are too loud. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, as Etta said. It's been a deadly long weekend on roads in the GTA. Two 20-year-old men were killed in separate collisions in Peel region over the past 24 hours, while another man was killed in a crash on Canada Day. Another cyclist has been struck by a car while riding in the new O'Connor Street bike lane. The third collision in that new lane since it opened just a few weeks ago. In North America alone, tens of thousands of people die every year in car accidents. Even more are estimated to die prematurely from air pollution from cars' tailpipes. That's not even getting to the emissions impact personal vehicles have on worsening the climate crisis. So one really has to ask, if cars cause so many problems, why do we design our cities around them? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but when I look at city design, there are very few things that Canadian cities do well, to be perfectly honest. And I know that sounds overly negative, but that is just the truth. Canadian cities, like American cities, used to be compact, walkable, just like the places in Europe. As more and more of us live in the country's large urban centers, it's a question that more and more of us are asking. My name is Jason Slaughter. And I run a YouTube channel called Not Just Bikes, which has accidentally become the largest urban planning channel on YouTube. Jason is originally from Canada, London, Ontario, to be precise, but lives and works in Amsterdam now. Jason wasn't really familiar with Canada's design flaws until he started traveling for his old job in the semiconductor manufacturing industry. I don't even know where to start. I have been to 60 countries, 61 countries, I think it is. So I had a job that required me to travel a lot. And I think that's what really radicalized me about city design. It was interesting to do all of this travel because I could be somewhere like Houston. And then the next day I'd be in Tokyo. And then a few days after that, I'd be somewhere in China. And then I'd be in Berlin. Most importantly, I wasn't going to tourist destinations. I was going to the places where people actually lived and worked. And so I saw the way people lived in different places. And at first, I assumed this was all due to culture or history or climate or topography or whatever, the reason why all these cities were so different. But as I started learning more and more about urban planning, I learned that actually that's not the case at all. The way our cities are designed really does come down to decisions that have been made and are being made about uh, how the city should be designed. I think most people don't even realize that cities are designed, but like... Your city is made up of an absolutely insane number of rules and regulations that make it the way they are. Everything in your city is designed, even right down to the color of the lines that separate the parking spots. That's defined in some book of regulations somewhere. And so cities are made and they are designed and how they are designed makes a huge difference on the way that city is but also the way that people live and experience their lives. And I think that's what's so important to me about this subject is that there are some cities I've been to that are absolutely horrible places to be. Some of them are in Canada. And there are places that are wonderful. And the decisions that led to those places are decisions that we as citizens have a say over. And those are decisions being made on our behalf, whether we know it or not. But these decisions aren't hidden, and they aren't car-centric everywhere. 
and it was a big part of what motivated Jason to pack up his family and move them halfway around the world. I'm from London, Ontario. I lived in Toronto after graduation, and then my wife and I lived in the UK for a while, Taiwan, Belgium, back to Canada. And after living outside of Canada for so long, uh, especially living in walkable cities with functional public transportation, going back to Canada was very, very difficult. I was like, I, I can't do this. I can't live back in a place where you can't live your life without getting in a car. So we started doing research as to where the perfect place was for us to live. If it wasn't going to be Canada, where was it? Where were we going to settle down and raise our children? And ultimately decided on moving to Amsterdam because it's just such a wonderful city to be in. It's very safe. It's a relatively small city by international standards with, you know, around a million people. But it still feels almost like a village in ways. It's not loaded with car traffic. There's lots of interesting things to do within walking distance. You can live your whole life without ever having to get in a car. The kids have lots of independence. They can get to where they're going on their own, you know, unlike Canada, where, you know, there's soccer moms that drive children around everywhere. And all in all, it's just a much higher quality of life than we ever got in Canada or in many other cities in the world that I've lived. But why do Canadian cities suck? What is it about cities and towns that make for such a miserable user experience? What is the design flaw that makes our urban areas dangerous places to be? The key, as Jason explains it, is understanding the defining characteristic of how many North American cities, particularly smaller towns and cities, design their traffic infrastructure. Strodes. So a strode is a term, um, it's a horrible sounding term and that's intentional. S-T-R-O-A-D-S, which is a portmanteau of street and road. So to understand this, you have to understand a road. A road is supposed to be a limited access road that is meant to move vehicles at a high speed between point A to point B. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a street. Now, a street is the place where you will find houses and businesses, and there'll be sidewalks and people cycling and people walking around. Uh, a street is ultimately where the life in the city happens. And actually, if you go around, say, here in the Netherlands, everything is either a street or a road. It's very clear. And in North America, we don't do this. We have something in between a street and a road called a strode. And strodes are everywhere in Canadian cities. Like London, Ontario is basically made up of strodes. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a miserable place to be when you're outside of a car. We've all seen these. You probably have one where you live. Alongside the strode, there's likely a small mall or plaza with things like a gas station, a large grocery store, maybe some other chain stores and restaurants. Maybe you could walk there, but you'd probably rather not. There probably aren't many trees in sight either. It's usually four lanes or six lanes, usually has turning lanes. It'll have a whole bunch of driveways to houses or businesses along it. And it's such a normal thing to see in a Canadian city that I think people almost don't understand how you could not have them. The problem is, is that strodes don't work very well as a road. They have so many driveways and entrances and exits and cars merging in and out that they slow down traffic. So they have these high speed limits, but you almost never get to that speed because you're constantly stopping. You also need to have traffic lights all over in strodes too because of there's so much traffic coming in and out that traffic lights need to be put up and every cross street needs a, a traffic light. 
And they don't act very well as a street either, because when you see streets in our old downtown centers that haven't been bulldozed in Canada, you know, there's a line of shops and you can walk from one to the other and they're very pleasant places to be. And, and these are productive places, places where businesses do well, where they get a lot of foot traffic, where they bring in a lot of revenue for the city as well. And, and Strode's basically ruined that street concept. Strodes might be loud, they might be dangerous, both for people in cars and out of them, but there is another factor to consider, economics. Ultimately, Strodes are extraordinarily expensive too, because they have to be absolutely huge to carry the amount of traffic they need to carry. They have to be much bigger than a road that would carry the same amount of traffic. And at the same time, there's a huge amount of infrastructure that needs to go in from traffic lights to grading it flat to all the asphalt, to the giant turning lanes, to the parking lots and everything else which stretches out all of the infrastructure, everything from the roads, but also the electricity lines, the sewage, the water lines. Public transportation becomes difficult because everything's so spread out, and all of this becomes very expensive. In addition to all the costs associated with making and maintaining roads and parking lots, there are significant health and safety risks with not just strodes, but why roads and streets in general. I shared a CBC story with Jason in which a woman from London, Ontario, started an online petition asking the city to convert a two-way stop to a four-way stop at a residential intersection after a recent collision and multiple near misses near her home. Stop signs are ridiculous. They shouldn't exist at all. I think I called it stop signs are the traffic engineering equivalent of we've thought of nothing and we're all out of ideas. This person is looking at dangerous driving on her street fast driving on her street, and her solution is basically the only thing in the toolbox in North America, in Canada, which is a stop sign. Stop signs are not necessary. Like, there are almost none in the Netherlands. It's the wrong solution to the problem. The issue with this street, and I'm looking at it right now on Street View, is the issue with so many residential streets in Canada and in North America. This street is wide and it is straight. So what happens is when a road is wide and straight, we drive at the speed we feel comfortable. This looks to me like a street that I could easily drive 50 kilometers an hour on, maybe even 60. So if this road were in the Netherlands, what they do is they purposely narrow them. They narrow the streets, they make them more curvy, they introduce curves, because what happens is that when the streets are narrower, when there are curbs, when there's more complexity in the street, for instance, a tree that is planted maybe not in the middle of the street, but near the middle of the street, people subconsciously slow down. This is the effective traffic calming. The other things you can do is to put in speed bumps. What they do here in the Netherlands is they do what are called raised crossings. So the entire intersection is raised up like one big speed bump, which requires drivers to slow down at that intersection. Another thing that's common in residential neighborhoods in the Netherlands is that the surface will be made of bricks. And that's not just done to make it look pretty. That's done because driving a car on bricks produces more road noise. And studies have shown that when there is more road noise, people will drive slower. So the whole design of the street is fundamentally different. And so a street like this, Edward Street here in London, Ontario, would be changed substantially. First of all, it would be changed to about half its width. And what they did with that width is entirely dependent on the street. Maybe it becomes street parking, maybe it becomes planter boxes. And also there would be curves that would be purposely put in, and there would be speed bumps put in. And, and that would solve the speeding problem. And in fact, then at the intersection, no stop sign is needed at all. This resident is going to ask for a stop sign. But what's inevitably going to happen is that this road is still wide, it is still straight, people are still going to drive too fast, 
and people are going to run those stop signs. This is a fundamental problem of road design, and a stop sign band-aid is not going to fix this. The CBC article went on to say that Shane McGuire, London's division manager of traffic engineering, said current traffic data and collision data don't support the installation of an all-way stop, and that, quote, our processes are based on data rather than anecdotal reports, end quote. But how do you solve a problem that is literally the size of a city? This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Now, this is where things get complicated. Redesigning our streets and getting rid of strodes is one thing, but it doesn't solve the issue of how the rest of urban space is used, with things like giant empty parking lots, shops that are far away from the road or street, and were designed to be accessible primarily by car. It comes down to a fundamental redesign of our cities that goes beyond seemingly simple projects like reducing the number of lanes or the width of streets. For example, if we talk about bike infrastructure, it's not just about adding a dedicated separate bike lane on major arteries. It's about a whole system of being able to get around by bike. It's about having dedicated bike parking facilities so that you aren't worried about theft. It's about making it more advantageous to bike by giving priority to bikes at intersections using things like sensors that will switch the light as a bike approaches and then automatically switch back for car traffic, as is common in Amsterdam. Even walking infrastructure is more complicated than just having a sidewalk. To encourage people to walk places, it has to be a safe and enjoyable experience. Trees, shade, and benches can make for a better pedestrian experience. And of course, you have to feel safe crossing the road, meaning things like raised crossings at intersections that guarantee traffic will slow down and yield to pedestrians. 
It's about creating a culture that respects the people who aren't in cars. If Canada is to achieve its climate targets, cities and urban areas will need to be the focus of its efforts. But cities are complex organisms with lots of moving parts. Different departments, politics, people, committees, you name it. So how do urban planners wrestle with all of these competing interests? Well, I asked one. Brent Totterin, I'm a city planner and urbanist, uh, former chief planner for Vancouver, now an advisor to cities and progressive developments all over the world. It's the attitude and culture of a city. And that's true of cities of every size. It turns out car culture isn't the only culture in city planning. It comes down to what I might call energy versus excuse. There are many, many cities that talk about why they can't do something and have a very strong embedded energy of excuse. And there's other cities that are just getting on with it and doing it. When I first went back to consulting, I thought I would be talking about city planning content, if you will, the right things and the wrong things to do. And what I've invariably found is that the real difference between success and failure is usually about culture. It's about culture and conversation. The culture of City Hall, the culture of leaders, to not make excuses and find creative ways to solve problems and address things. The prevailing conversation about why we're changing the city for the better. Because if you don't have that conversation, often the predominant voice from the public is, we like the city the way that it is and we don't want it to change at all. Even if it's not working for present citizens, let alone future citizens in the context of the climate emergency. I could spend a long time with you talking about technical barriers, legal barriers, procedural barriers, financial barriers, but the cities around the world that I work with that are doing things are not doing those things because of the absence of those kinds of barriers. One of my particular examples that I use is all the work I've done in Latin American cities where, trust me, they have a lot more barriers than we do in Canada. They just have uh, rejected the culture of using those barriers as an excuse. They've found ways to do innovative things in whatever context they find themselves in. I often talk about cities that punch above their weight, that are doing innovative things that you wouldn't expect from smaller cities. That certainly is the case right now in the work that I'm doing with Kingston. Kingston is probably one of the most innovative cities in Canada right now when it comes to city planning and city building. And it certainly wasn't that way just a few years ago. And it's not a city that even has a big staff, let alone a big budget. Some of the recent changes Brent is talking about are discussed in a report from June 2021 called The Power of Parking, a New Parking Paradigm for Kingston. Policy proposals include things like a new parking minimum specifically for car share vehicles, minimum bike parking requirements, minimum bike parking requirements that are both secure and weatherproof at locations where riders are likely to be parked for a long time special parking requirements for storing cargo bikes, or to make cycling more accessible to people with disabilities, as well as outlets to charge e-bikes. There's even a new cash-in-lieu of parking program encouraging residential developers to give money towards a municipal-led car share system instead of parking. Car culture is king in Canada, and the need for these kinds of policies demonstrates just how deeply ingrained it is and how much work is needed to undo it. If there is a sort of a fundamental barrier in Canadian and North American cities, it's the barrier of of our perception around the car. Because how much we believe that we cannot change things because of the primacy of the car and how much of our city and civic life we've surrendered to the car, 
that seems to be a, a primary differentiator between innovative and non-innovative cities. And so that can play out in all sorts of conversations, financial conversations around priority of public money, but it always leads back to that cultural assumption that we are stuck with the car or even that we want the car to be more dominant. One solution we've been hearing a lot about in Canada is the adoption of electric vehicles to mitigate the climate impact of the internal combustion engine. After all, it's easy to hear how those are the engines that pollute our air and our ears. But Brent feels differently about this. We know that at best, electric vehicles is part of the solution around better mobility. At best. And I say at best because there's a good chance electric vehicles will actually make the car component of urban mobility worse because of the observation that every time we improve a technology, we end up using it more. It could easily end up with us having more cars and driving even further and actually increasing our emissions, our pollution, etc. And that's even before you factor in things like the actual pollution that still comes from the manufacture of cars, the manufacture of roads and parking spaces, and the amount of pollution that just comes from wheels and brakes. So that's why I say it's at best a part of the solution. The primary part of the solution is four words, fewer cars, less driving. That is the four words that define the primary portion of the solution on urban mobility. And I'm not talking about pickup trucks in the rural areas. I'm talking about urban mobility, urban mobility, fewer cars, less driving. And that means making walking, biking, and transit and all other alternatives to car use and ownership uh, more easy and more enjoyable. That means rethinking roads and street design. It certainly means rethinking parking and how we do it and regulate it. It's going to take a fundamental rethink of almost every way we address cars and how much we've surrendered to them in cities. And electric vehicles and driverless cars are not the solution to that. They cannot be the focus of that rethink. But politicians of every and at every level of government have latched on to electric vehicles and driverless cars as the solution because it's a lot easier than doing the hard things that would actually work. Working with all levels of government is crucial for cities, roads, and transit to change. For example, provinces have jurisdiction over road and traffic regulations. Federal and provincial governments can also choose what kind of subsidies to provide citizens. In April 2022, the Trudeau government announced its plan to continue subsidizing the purchase of zero-emission vehicles up to $5,000 on a purchase for another three years. This is only subsidizing the purchase of electric cars, but not other sustainable low-emission travel such as electric bikes. A few provinces and the Yukon have rebates for e-bikes, but most don't, notably Quebec and Ontario, two of the most populous provinces. Federal and provincial governments often fund major infrastructure projects, but these projects often get derailed and mismanaged. Back in 2007, former Toronto Mayor David Miller had a grand vision for Transit City, a massive network of light rail transit. Over the next several years, subsequent mayors and changes in provincial policy left the plans for a network all but dead. 
And in May 2021, the province of Quebec announced a massive transit plan for Quebec City, including a third link, or tunnel, between the city and its south shore neighbour, Lévis. This was a $7 billion project that would include two lanes of traffic and one dedicated public transit lane in each direction. Then, less than one year later, the Legault government announced a more modest version of the tunnel that would remove the dedicated public transit line and was budgeted to cost $6.5 billion. Critics of the project argued that the tunnel wasn't even needed at all. And at the end of July 2022, the Montreal Gazette reported that Marc Doré, the mayor of Dorval, a city on the island of Montreal and home to Pierre Trudeau International Airport, lamented the fact that the region's new light rail system, the REM, would stop at the airport and not continue another 700 meters to the existing Via Rail and commuter train station and bus terminal. Doré specifically cited complications because the project involves three levels of government and multiple transit agencies. Brent says that he does see some positive changes coming on that collaborative front. Often there can be this discussion about whether climate change is more appropriately addressed at the provincial or federal level. But I am always quick to point out that the single most important government power relative to mitigating the climate emergency is the power over land use. And that is a municipal power, largely. It is a power wielded every day by city councils. Cities are constantly at the mercy of other levels of government to pay for even basic things necessary to do a good job with city building. And the obvious example where that plays out is transit funding. And the fact that we had transit projects in cities in paralysis for many decades because of this artificial funding model of one-third, 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 that major transit projects would get paid for one-third by the federal government, one-third by the provincial government, one-third by the the local government, when the local government collected eight or nine cents of every tax dollar. So it was impossible for cities to pay one-third. And that artificial construct that bore no resemblance to financial reality in Canada literally had transit projects in paralysis for years and even decades. Until, to their credit, the Trudeau government, one of the first things they did was change the federal government's approach to the funding model and essentially upped their portion significantly. And until they did that, transit investment was paralyzed for many, many years. Yes, it it matters greatly what cities propose. And what cities propose for funding is driven by their values. So for a long time, projects proposed for funding relative to infrastructure were often road projects for cars. Again, the Trudeau government, through an initiative, tied the funding projects to Canada's goals around the climate change. And so you actually had to, for the first time, show that when you were pitching projects for funding, you had to tie it to climate change results. And I believe that was the first time that that had been done. Looking internationally, quick change is possible. In Paris, for example, there is a plan to change its périphérique ring road, the 35-kilometer highway that encircles the city, to something more akin to an urban boulevard with trees dividing the middle, dedicated transit lanes, and more by 2030, less than 10 years. And in Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, the city centre became completely car-free in 2007 as part of a larger climate and sustainability plan. Other goals included improvements to its public transit and a bike-share program. Most of these changes happen in the past 15 years. 
I asked Jason what he felt about the future of Canadian cities and why he spends his time making videos for his YouTube channel with its bright orange logo about urban design. Well, to a certain extent, I'm relatively pessimistic. That's why we moved to Europe in the first place. And part of my target for this channel is to educate me 20 years ago. These are all the things I wish I had known. So I thought it was normal to have a neighborhood with homes where it's far away from where all the shops were. Well, it's not. And it doesn't have to be this way. My friends and family back in, in Canada and most of my Canadian viewers are looking at this. And uh, what my viewers have come up with this term called being orange-pilled which is they start watching my content, they might be a little skeptical, but then they start to look at it and they see their city in a whole new way. It's like once they've taken the orange pill, they can never look at the city the same way again. Suddenly, once you know what a strode is and why they're dangerous, why they're expensive, why they're inefficient, you see them everywhere. You see the, the guy who's stuck there for five minutes trying to make a left turn across a strode and you're like, why do we do it this way? The initial reaction people have to this stuff is... They, they say like, whoa, whoa, whoa like, you know, you're saying bad things about my city or maybe that works in Europe, but not here. But as, as they start to get introduced to the concept, it really flips. I mean, there are cities all over Canada that are starting to fix things. There are cities that are getting rid of things like minimum parking requirements. There are cities that are loosening their zoning requirements so that you can have a mixed use environment that makes destinations closer to each other. So it is possible that someone who works somewhere could walk to work. They could cycle to work. They could take public transit to work. But if we design our cities so that the only way to get around is driving, destinations will be too far away. Things will be too spread out for public transit. It'll be too unsafe to cycle. But yes, there are Canadian cities that are slowly making these changes. But these have to be much more drastic changes. But the most frustrating thing to me is that every urban planner I talk to says, yes, yes, that's what I've been saying for 30 years but we're not doing it. We're not doing it fast enough. And Jason isn't wrong. Famed urbanist and late Toronto resident known for her activism against the Spadina Expressway in 1970, Jane Jacobs talked about many similar ideas and concepts in her book from 1961, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. In it, she says, quote, What if we fail to stop the erosion of cities by automobiles? What if we are prevented from catalyzing workable and vital cities because the practical steps needed to do so are in conflict with the practical steps demanded by erosion? There is a silver lining to everything. In that case, we Americans will hardly need to ponder a mystery that has troubled men for millennia. What is the purpose of life? For us, the answer will be clear established and for all practical purposes indisputable, the purpose of life is to produce and consume automobiles. Brent thinks that the one thing that is needed is relatively simple. There needs to be leadership and strategic decision-making at every level of government. And no government can point the finger and say someone else is responsible or accountable. Although cities have a remarkable amount of power and direct decision-making around whether or not a city is a better walking city, a biking city, a transit-friendly city, a smart land-use city, just a, a good, successful, intelligent city. But they are either helped or hindered significantly by the provincial and federal governments. And they are often allowed to be bad by federal and provincial governments. You know, you could have a local policy that says they want to be sustainable, and yet put all of their funding into road projects that accommodate and even induce more driving. 
And Etta, the soundscape researcher I spoke to earlier, feels that progress is possible, but people and cities have to remember who they are serving. So I think that's the challenge that cities have, at least for me, is to find those moments to breathe. I guess I would just like cities to understand that the life between buildings matters a lot, and that's where we lead a lot of our lives on the street, in squares, and if we care more about that, that could actually make life a little bit more pleasant. That's your Canada Land. If you like this show, please support us. You can click on the link in your show notes. If you have thoughts or questions about any of the content we produce, you can email Jesse. His email is jesse at canadaland.com. He apparently reads everything you send him. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by our audio editor and technical producer, Tristan Capicione, with production assistance from Jonathan Goldsby. I'm this show's senior producer, Sarah Larnuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Music is by so-called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Again, if you like this show, please support us by going to canadaland.com join or just clicking on the link in your show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a campside media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.